Um, I just got back from uh, vacation. I was gone for the first week out of town. The second week was kind of that staycation, look around your house, realize what you need to do, but you don't do it. It's one of those. And um, I had an opportunity last weekend to come to Cy Rogers. And I'll tell you, it was so neat to be able to come into church and just sit and soak a little bit. I miss this place so badly when I'm gone. And so being able to have a little taste of it was a big deal to me. And I'm usually not good at uh, vacations. I don't know how to chill out. I don't know how to relax. I don't know how to do those kinds of things. I'm always a little bit high strung in my head. And so I didn't have high expectations for this vacation. I usually come back kind of needing a vacation. And one of the reasons that I came back even relatively sane and had a good vacation was because I made a decision to pick up a book that I was going to read on my vacation that would bless me spiritually. Um, I went into the Christian bookstore and I was looking around. I just wanted something that would catch my attention. And I found this one. It's by Timothy Keller. I don't know if you know any of his writing, but he is the guy who wrote Prodigal God. I've referred to that a little bit before. He wrote The Reason for God. Really intelligent guy. Loves C.S. Lewis. And anybody that loves C.S. Lewis is a friend of mine, right? He preaches out in New York City. And his newest book is called King's Cross. I didn't know anything about it. Just grabbed it and started reading it. What it is, is a really intelligent guy in a very peaceful, easy to read way, takes you through all the highlights of the Gospel of Mark. And brings you back to what is the main point. What was Jesus doing here? What is the cross all about? So whether or not you're brand new to this Christian concept. Or whether you've been a believer for decades. This book is really, really encouraging. Now I'm going to be closing the service today with a devotion out of this. And you go, oh, I wonder where he got that information. I ripped it off from Keller. And... If you need a book that maybe would boost up your spiritual life, I recommend this one. I'm going to try to get out to you a little bit more often. Things that are blessing me spiritually, books that I'm going through, stuff like that, so that maybe you can have some recommendations. But I did miss you a lot. And so it's so nice to be back here. I'll tell you that while I was gone, uh, we had a couple great speakers. And how do I know that? I know that from feedback. Uh, two weeks ago, we had John Jackson from William Jessup University, and he was wonderful. He actually was the last installment of the story we're about to go through. Last week was Cy Rogers, and I know that I knew him coming in was going to be absolutely controversial and crazy. I knew that was going to happen. And my inbent loaded up with all kinds of feedback that I haven't even sorted through. So everything that I've heard up to this point uh, was wonderful feedback of life change and people being able to connect with the Lord in a vastly new, wonderful way. So quite frankly, to me, he was a wonderful, wonderful blessing. It was nice to sit under some of his teaching and his testimony even just last weekend. Um, however, this weekend, stepping into this weekend, is the big weekend where we change translations of Scripture. Remember, I've been warning you for months that this was coming. We are transitioning from the 1984 NIV to the ESV this weekend. So what you're going to hear me read from today and preach from today is the ESV. And you'll look down at your NIV and it's different. Why are we doing that? If you're new, 
because they stopped printing the 1984 NIV. And what that did was create a time that we needed to figure out, are we going to go with the new NIV? Because they're not even making the old one anymore. So if we're handing out the old one, that's different than the person sitting next to you, which is different than the one that I'm reading. It didn't make sense. So we had to change. We were forced to change already because if someone comes to church new and they go out and buy an NIV, they can't even buy one of the 1984s. So we ended up saying, if we're going to switch translations, how do we get to one that is more accurate? So we grabbed the ESV, so I'll be reading out of that today. So having said all that, you need a Bible in your hands. Take out your Bible if you have one. If you do not, raise your hand and our team will bring a Bible to you. I'll give you the page number on where to turn to in these new Bibles. They're ESVs being handed out to you right now. And we can get started. Take the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door for us to begin We are in part 17 of our Life of Worship series, and I entitled the message, The Defensible Position of Worship. And I'm going to lead you to the fill in the blank here in a moment, but I want to begin with a very simple question to make my point. And the question is this, what was most moving about the following biblical stories to you? In other words, when I say the name of the Bible story, scan back in your mind what you like best. What makes you go, oh, I love that story because, all right, so we're going to play this little game together. You don't have to say it out loud. Just think it in your head. But first one, Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody remember Daniel in the lion's den? It's when Daniel was in a lion's den. (laughs) It's right there in the title for you. All right. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that story? That was the three young Hebrew boys that were put into the fiery furnace. We remember that. All right. And you can remember anything. Whatever your favorite part of all these stories were, keep that in mind. Um, How about Esther? Anybody remember the story of Esther? Uh, She's the one that had to go before the king on behalf of the Jewish people. And the king, if she wasn't asked to go before him, he could kill her and she had to put her life. You remember that? What about Peter? What do you remember about Peter? I mean, there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of gospels about Peter. I mean, a lot of stories in the gospel about Peter, right? What do you remember most? Do you remember his denial of Christ three times? Do you remember that one? No matter what story I select out of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, let's play uh, the same game with miracles. Everybody remember uh, Jesus healing the leper? Remember that one? Or the woman that was bleeding for 12 years? Remember her? She got healed by touching the garment. No matter what story I mention in scripture, the part you love most about the story was the time in people's lives that they were freaking out and it was the worst day of their whole life. How do we know that? Well, let's look at it realistically. Daniel had never been thrown into a lion's den before. It was his first time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had never been in a fire, much less walk around in one. They even say, quote, King, our God can save us, but if he does not know this, we will not bow down. What does that mean? It means I don't know how this is going to go. I've never done this before. You want to talk about what you love about Jonah, right? What do you love about Jonah? He had a horrible day. 
He had a fish grab him, swallow him up, and then vomit him out on the beach. He thought he was going to die. What do you love about Peter? I don't know. The worst day of his life? That he denied Christ three times and then Christ forgave him and he has all this restoration, right? Esther, scared out of her mind that the king was going to kill her. And it's the part we love in every one of the Bible stories. If we know that, why don't we think differently? Why don't we pray differently? Because here's why we love it so much in the story. We love the story, the bad parts, because we know when things get super bad, who shows up? God. It's God in the fire, right? But none of us pray that way. None of us ever say things like this. uh, God, I would like to come to you today because all it is is blessing, 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 blessing. God, if you just, you know that you move in bad times, where's the poverty? Anybody doing that one? Nobody ever does the whole thing of, gosh, all it is is always the same thing. The doctor gives me a good checkup. Okay, you know what, Lord? You usually move in disease and suffering. I would like a lot more of that in my life. Okay, nobody ever prays that way. As a matter of fact, all our prayers seem to sound the same. They tend to sound like this. God... Please stop the chaos that's going on in my life. God, please heal the pain that I feel. God, please make this situation right. Almost every prayer we pray is, God, make it easier and more comfortable to live. Hmm. But that's not the stories that we like in the Bible. We like when Jesus shows up and something radical happens. You cannot have a radical story without something really bad. You can't have a miracle of how Jesus touched the leper without a guy living with leprosy his whole life. You can't have a woman be healed after 12 years of bleeding without 12 years of bleeding. It seems that to us, we want two polar opposite things. We want quiet and peace, and we want God's will for our lives. Those don't normally work together. As Erwin McManus once said, God is afraid of no one and nothing. and He will go wherever he wants to go. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. As scary as God's will is, it's where he dwells. As scary as God's will is, and it is scary, it's where he lives. It was outside the boat on the waves that Peter got to walk with Jesus. It was not in the safety of the boat. And so I would say that when we pray for comfort, the more and more that we get it, the more we miss God and find ourselves bored out of our minds with Christianity. And if you think that perhaps you're lacking passion in your own walk, it may well because God answered your prayers. (laughs) You probably got what you asked for. 
things are actually probably going really well. And we know that when things go really well for a time, we tend to lull down. We're not passionate in our prayers. We're not fervent in our prayers. Those tend to get stoked by suffering. Hmm. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29, it's page 251 in the Bible's handed to you, and I'll set up where we're at in the story. Many of you have walked in today, and your lives are in chaos. You don't know what in the world's going on. You have no idea what's been happening to you. You're not sure what's around the next corner, and you have absolutely no plan. And every time you try to make a plan, God blows it out of the water. And you feel like either God has abandoned me or God is messing with me or everything is just up to chance and I feel lost. If that is you, you feel like David. We're about to read again when David gets caught into a situation that he doesn't know how to get out of. We're caught in a situation where his poor decisions at one point led to a very difficult time. Even when he made good decisions, God orchestrated it where it looked bad. And now all of a sudden he's all messed up and upside down again. What can we learn in this? I think that this type of dialogue and this type of discussion reveals how little faith and how little trust we have for God. You will not know the level of your trust or faith when things are good. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit, kind of the opening part of the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 29, kind of get a groove, we'll pray for the word of God, and then I'll go back through and tear it apart, all right, see what God has for us. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, oh, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who is now with me for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Here's what's happening. For two years now, David has been living with the Philistines. Why? Because the king of Israel has been chasing him around trying to kill him. That would be Saul. Last time we were in this story, we learned in one of the most freaky stories of all time that Saul went... And asked God whether or not he was going to win a war with the Philistines. And God wouldn't answer him. So he turned to the dark side. Went over to a spiritist, a medium, a fortune teller. And asked the demonic powers to do something on his behalf. To go consult and try to raise Samuel back up from the dead so he could talk to him. Well, that wasn't going to go well. 
As a matter of fact, it was a rather horrible situation for Saul. Everybody remember this story? It's two weeks ago, so probably not. Saul has her conjure up. I don't think that she had any clue that this was going to work. Sure enough, Samuel shows up and he is ticked off. He looks at him and he's going, what is wrong with you? You seriously consulted a person that works with a demonic to come grab me and I don't want to talk to you. So you bring me up out of the dead. God allows it for some weird reason. Now I'm irritated with you. You want to talk to me? Great. Here's my message. You're going to lose the fight. You're going to die and see me soon. Bye-bye. And he's out. That was not what Saul expected. Now, why was Saul consulting him? Because of this big war that was happening between the Israelites and the Philistines. But now as they line up for battle at the beginning of this story, David's on the other side. The problem with that predicament is either he switches sides to go to the Israelites where Saul doesn't want him and the Philistines kill him. Or he stays where he is and has to fight against his own people who he's spent his whole life defending. Well, that doesn't work out now, does it? No matter which way he goes, he's doomed. It's called a rock and a hard place scenario. How is he going to get out of that one? Well, I bet you no matter what plan he came up with, and currently he is not operating in any plan because he's marching right in as the personal bodyguard, he and all 600 of his men are the personal bodyguard contingent of a Philistine king by the name of Achish. They come riding in. Remember, all his life he said, I will not touch God's anointed. So was he going to turn in battle? And what if Saul didn't want him to? This is a no-win situation. That's when God has to step in. Because God always steps in. Let's pray for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience. Lord, we have no idea what's going on and we think we know better. And we rail against you and we call you names and we make determinations about you when our circumstances alter. Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us to see you differently. God, allow us to be men and women of faith and that as long as we know that you are good and you are here we're okay be glorified in us in jesus name amen so let's back up and tear it apart a little bit more it says now the philistines had gathered all their forces at aphek aphek is a city As a matter of fact, years before this, this is the same location where the Philistines beat down the Israelites and stole the Ark of the Covenant. So they're pretty certain that when they walk into this town, hey, we won here last time. And they're ready to go head to head with all that they have against Saul and his men. The Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, 40 miles away. Their camps are 40 miles apart and they will fight in the middle. Now, as the Lord of the Philistines, who are these guys? Well, the Philistine nation was broken into five major cities. Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, these types of cities. Gath. 
Those five cities had each their own king or ruler. So they were a people group of five rulers. One of them was Achish. That's the one that David works for. But one king does not control all the other kings. They're like a conglomerate. All right? Now, as the Lord of the Philistines were passing on with their crews by hundreds and by thousands, David and his men were passing on in the rear as the personal bodyguard contingent of Achish. The commanders of the Philistines, the other leaders, start looking around and they realize not everybody looks like them. There's a big, enormous bodyguard group that looks an awful lot like the guys they're going out to fight. And so they ask the obvious question. Hey, I got a question. What are these Hebrews doing here? They don't belong with us. They're not part of us. We're going to fight their people. That's not going to happen. Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it, guys. You know David. Look, there he is. Now, everybody remember that David killed their champion, Goliath? That We all know that. Okay. You know David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who we're about to fight. But don't worry about it. He's been with me now for days and years. Since he deserted Saul to come over to me, I have found no fault to him this day. There's no indicator that God inquired, uh, that David inquired of God to go live among the Philistines. There's no indicator that David inquired of God that he was supposed to go out in battle. But here he is in quite the predicament. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with King Achish and they said to him, send him back home. Send him back to the city you gave him. The whole idea that you gave him a city is embarrassing to us. You gave him a city called Ziklag. That's a Philistine city. You don't just give away that stuff to Israelites. You can imagine all this is going on. Send them back home to the place that you assigned. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. Hey, Achish, did you ever think maybe he might turn on you? How could this fellow, what's a better way? For him to get back into the good graces of Saul, then right in the middle of battle, turn on us. And then, yay, they have a reunion and we lose. Is this not David, of whom they sing it to one another in dances? Saul struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. Do you understand that even to this point, it's still on the top ten? All over the radio. Now, the funny part is what happens next. For the rest of the chapter is one of the most silly dialogues that I've seen in a while. And here's why. Achish really likes David, and it's like his puppy dog. So he comes out, and they're all walking, and Achish's head is held high, and he's got his David and his big band of thugs, right, his 600 guys. So Achish is going, yep, check him out, check him out, look at all my men, right? And the Philistines go... I'm not going to war with these guys. He's like, what do you mean? Those are my bodyguards. Those are my good guys. They're like, no, I am not going to go to battle with them. You may be willing to put yourself at risk. I'm not willing to put myself at risk. And he goes, no, 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 no. You don't understand. He's my main man. They're like, what? No. Okay. It's not going to happen. I'm letting you know right now. 
send him home. Now, literally, it's almost like he has a dog and he goes, can he stay? He followed me home. And they're like, no, send him home. Right? So he has to go back to David. And this is the most embarrassing dialogue between two adult men I've ever seen. He walks back and he kind of does this little kick in the dirt. Hey, Dave, you can't go with us. Now, when he says you can't go with us, they don't like you. That's David's out. Right? David could never have designed up a plan to escape out of this messed up scenario, which is the Philistines still like you, will still give you your city, will still be on your side, but they're going to let you out of the fight. That was God's plan. That's a pretty cool plan, right? That's pretty impressive. David almost ruins it. Why? Because David gets all personal about it. Why can't I go? What did I do? All his men are like, David, shut up, man. Ixnay on the whole thing. Just let it go. God has just provided for you, buddy. Don't push it. And David's like, I'm really good at this. What are you, you know? Now, David's been lying to this guy the whole time. He's been living a life of deception. If you remember in the story, he lives in the Philistine area, but does raiding parties for the Israelites. Remember all that? So what in the world is David doing by going, I can't believe you would turn on me like this. I'm your man. Yeah. David, just let it go. And the funny part is the next line. King Achish goes, I know, little buddy, you're my best. You're a good little guy. And he starts praising David over and over and over again. You're an angel of God to me and you're blah, blah. You're like, what? Are you serious? They're on a war field and you're talking like this. And he's like, but David, they don't understand you like I do. And then, you know, and you're like, what? He's like, you got to go home, buddy. Finally, David and his men leave. Now, what should be occurring on this walk home, which is a 75-mile trip that takes three days to make, what should be happening is a bunch of high-fiving and, dude, I can't believe God got us out of that one. That was awesome. I was like, oh, no, are we going to fight for the Philistines? Are we going to fight against the Israelites? Oh, are we going to turn around and turn on them? Dave, I don't even know what your plan was. I mean, that was craziness. And then God swooped in and he's like, you're free and all that. Yeah, and they're all high-five. That's what probably happened they didn't record that part and so they're all excited and i would imagine that internally david and his men are thinking this god likes us i mean of course he likes us everything's going well for us we were just in a bad place and god made everything right so check that out we didn't have to do anything God wants us at peace. And so we wanted comfort. We prayed about it. God answered our prayers. Here we are. Things are good. And they walk around the corner and their whole hometown is burned to the ground and all their children are stolen. Talk about a reverse. This is important because if you've ever just been talking to your friend on the phone about how good God is and how many great things he's done for you and isn't he awesome and then you got horrible news you'll turn on God like that God is so good because your circumstances are good no God's bad he's abandoned me doesn't love me circumstances are bad do not Allow your circumstances to dictate 
your theology. Either God is good or he is not good. Make the decision because your circumstances will change moment by moment. If God is good and situations are bad, you and I don't have all the information. Yeah? Here's where the story picks up. Now when David, we're in chapter 30 verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the desert region. That's where the Negev is. And against their hometown of Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all that were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. Two things are important to know. Number one, this is an editor's note, an author's note, that no one was killed. David and his men don't know that. All they know is their families are gone. As far as they know, this raiding band of Amalekites who are bloodthirsty may well have killed everyone. They don't know. All they know is their families are gone. So who are the Amalekites? They're another bad guy group. Amalek descended from blah, blah. You can follow all that. Here's what's important to know. They're under a curse from God as a whole people group. For what? For a very famous attack they led in the past. Let's go back to a very famous story of when Moses goes head to head with Pharaoh and God comes in, rains down the plagues and Israel comes out of Egypt. Remember the Passover, the biggest story in Israel's history. You remember that one? Well, when they walked out of that territory, they had been slaves the whole time. They never ran their own cities. They never ran their own plans. They were always under somebody else. So they did not have all the knowledge. They were not ready to walk on their own. And they needed a little bit of time to learn and to grow up. And you know as well as I do that they began to wander in the desert for how many years? 40 years. So practically speaking, these are all young children at heart. Though their bodies are older. They come walking into the desert and they get hit by a raiding party. Who? The Amalekites. And God said, did you just touch my kids? Did you seriously come in and attack my people after I just set them free? How dare you? From this day forward, I will wipe you off the face of the earth. And he put an edict down on Israel to clean the world of all Amalekites. That job was to be done eventually by King Saul. But King Saul blew it. Do you remember that? Remember, what's that I hear? Why did you bring back all these people? You were supposed to wipe them out. Because of Saul's failure, we have this problem. Saul's not getting the job done. David's going to get forced into it. Because God still has things he needs to get done. So, it says... Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a place of suffering to where you can't cry anymore. But that's where they were at. These tough, strong, big, bad, rebellious men. Warriors of the highest caliber. 
are undone. And they're a mess in the desert. Why? Because their kids are gone. You want to undo somebody, go after their kids. You'll hit them in the softest place they know. David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of what? Stoning him. Who? His own people. His team. Spoke of killing him by throwing rocks at his head until he dies. What? Talk about a bad day. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. You know what that is? That's called human nature. What happens when something horrible comes into your life? You immediately look for someone to blame and you will not look at yourself first. Who's causing this problem? If it's economic destruction, who did that? Who's responsible for this? If it's relational chaos, it's your fault. It's not my fault. And you always have to find if something happens to your family, someone caused it and you will go out of your way to find out who that culprit is so you can hate them fully and vent your frustration over your scenario. So they all turn and look at David. It was your idea. You're the one that wanted to go march with this Philistine thing. We could have stayed hidden in the desert. We did not have to do that. And now I have lost my wife and my children and it's your fault. I will tell you this. He's not the first spiritual leader to be on the edge of being stoned by his people. Moses went through the exact same thing. What's so extraordinary about that is both David and Moses reacted unlike most men would. When all their people turn on them, they end up going to their defense. They don't lash back. That's a whole different kind of leadership. Sincerely, Moses, when they all came at Moses, God said, Moses, I'll kill them all. We'll start over. Moses started interceding for the people that attacked him. No, God, they were just emotional. They're just messed up. But you don't kill them all right now. We can work with it, right? David's the same way. He doesn't lash back at him, but it says he did what? Look at the next line, because if you can figure out this next line in your life, you're going to be all right. The next line is, but David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. How do you know how to do that? Because all his life, he's always been alone. When he grew up, his family didn't like him and they all put him to the side. Because when he started growing up and entered into Saul's service, the man he worked for kept trying to kill him. And he has spent all his life on the run and nobody's ever been on his side except for one man, a guy by the name of Jonathan, who their dads won't let him play together. And what happens when you're always forced to be alone? You have no one to rely on but who? God. He's the only one that can come see you. He's the only one that can shield you. He's the only one that can strengthen you because no one else is there. David's gotten pretty good at focusing on God alone. And there he strengthened himself in the Lord. I do not know how to do that well. I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. I've been a teacher for decades. I've been a pastor for a really, really long time. And I don't know how to do this well. And it's costing me every day. 
Did he do it by prayer? Did he do it by worship? Did he do it by hanging out with other people? Did he do it? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Do you know how to do it? Jesus, whenever he would get exhausted and wiped out, he would withdraw and hang out with the Father and get recharged. If your battery is running low, you might not know how to do this well. And my battery is running low. I can tell you that though I do not know how to do it well, any time I've ever been ultimately refreshed in life has always been a God thing. Always. Because everything else that I run to, whether it is a temporary fix or an escapism, they do not satisfy long term. They're very short term and largely bitter at the end. I know the answer is in our Lord. I know there is refreshment to be found. I just need to get better at listening and allowing him to minister to me. Maybe that's yours too. But David knew the secret. And it gave him the strength to go on. So what did he do? Well, this. And David said to Abiathar the priest, verse 7, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Now the ephod was a priestly garment that he would wear and it had a pouch in it. And in that pouch was a tool by which they would discern the will of God. There were two objects called the Urim and the Thummim. They do not, we don't have any of them, so it's all a guess as to what they look like or how they operated. But the best scholarly guess is this. There were two objects, perhaps balls, and what they would do is one of them would be white, one of them would be black or of different color. And what they would do is inquire of the Lord, God, should we go into warfare? And the priest would pray over it, submit it to the Lord, reach in his hand and draw out an object. If it was one color, the answer was yes. If it was another color, the answer was no. As simple as that. David said, I need to know from God whether or not we can go to fight and go get our stuff back and our families back and our lives back. David is back on track, checking in with God. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band of Amalekites? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. Well, that's awesome. At least now we have some hope. We have some positivity. God's on our side. We can do this. Now they got to muster up all their strength. And I don't know about you, but emotional exhaustion is heavier than physical exhaustion. Can we agree on that? So not only did they just finish a 75-mile walk to find out that their lives were lost, they just cried till they couldn't cry anymore, they're completely wiped out, and now they're on a run. Because you run when your kids are in danger. You don't walk, you don't sit back, you don't kick back, you take off with all that you have, and they take off for a 20-mile run all the way down to a ravine. It says... So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor. That's a 20 mile or 18 mile run south. They come to this massive gorge that's dry. It has water that normally runs through it in the winter, but it's dry in the summer. And it's a huge ravine about the width of a football field. It's a very famous ravine, one of the largest in the area. And so they came to that place to stop for refreshment with a small amount of water that was there. And that's where one-third of the whole team collapsed. Look at the next phrase. Where those who were left behind stayed, but David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind because they were too exhausted to cross the brook, Besor. 
give you an idea on what this is, is this section right here of seats, these folks, this middle section and this section over here, that is about 600 people. This is his whole team. They're going to go fight against the Amalekites. They have no idea how many Amalekites they're going to have to fight. They have no plan because they don't know who the enemy is. Second problem, they don't know where they're going. They have no idea. They're in the middle of the desert. There's no tracking. So the Amalekites could be anywhere. They don't know how soon they took off. They don't know how far they are behind them. And then all of a sudden, this section right here bails out. 200, gone. Now it's just us. We're all going to go to warfare because they can't continue on. So we have a problem of where's the enemy and how in the world are we going to win? Again, another impossible situation. You think David feels jerked around a little bit? You think David doesn't feel like anything of what he wants is happening? Do you think he feels upside down? Of course he does. He feels like many of you. But does God know what he's doing? God always knows what he's doing. Is David's plan happening? No. Is God's plan happening? Yes. And there, when they're completely wiped out, run into the desert and go, which way do we go, Dave? He goes, I have no idea. And the one guy looks over and he goes... Hey, what's that? What's what? That thing over there. That's a rock. No, it ain't a rock. What's that thing? Oh my gosh, it looks like a guy. Okay, why is there a guy laying down in the desert? I have no idea. Let's go check it out. They go over. Is he alive? I don't know. Poke him. (laughs) Yeah, he's alive. Well, that's so weird. Why is there a guy laying here in the desert? He's barely alive. We'll get him some food and some water. And they kind of resuscitate him for a second. And they said, man, what's going on? You look Egyptian, but you're way out of your territory, buddy. And he goes, well, I'm an Amalekite slave. They, my master, saw that I became ill, thought I wasn't worth waiting around for. They bailed out on me three days ago, and I've been laying here in the dirt ever since. So quite frankly, unless you guys walked up, I would have been dead. Well, that's an intriguing turn of events, isn't it? Nowhere in David's plan was there ever a almost dead human GPS. (laughs) No one could have dreamed that one up. Sure enough, they get him back up and they said, do you know where the enemy went? He said, yes, I do. They said, can you take me there? He said, no, I will not. They said, why not? He said, because you're going to hand me over to him. They're never going back there. They said, all right, if we promise that you won't go back. Will you tell us? He said, absolutely. So now all of a sudden they have someone to lead them there that they never would have imagined before. Now they only have one problem left. How in the world are they going to fight a battle? They don't know how many people are going to be there. There's probably going to be a lot of Amalekites. They may be 400 tough guys, but how's this going to go down? They're not going to be able to do the element of surprise. They're walking around in the desert and the other guys are armed for warfare too. All right, it's going to get bloody. Who are we going to lose in the process? Well, look at the next part of the story. Verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land. Who? The Amalekites. Eating and drinking and dancing. Wait, what? Because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. All right, pause. They come walking into the desert, they're exhausted, don't know how they're going to fight, and they come upon a desert kegger. (laughs) 
everybody's hammered. Everybody's like, wah, they're dancing around. They're all completely messed up. Why is that important? Because they're not ready for warfare. You think David would have planned that one? Nope. How do you get the whole enemy drunk right before you fight them? Well, I don't know. God's apparently pretty good at that. He gets them all liquored up and David's men are like, are you kidding me? Seriously. Human dead GPS. Kager in the desert. Ah, I didn't see this one coming. But you know what? We're going to completely hit this one hard. Look at the next phrase. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back what? All. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. What's the recap? The recap is in David's plan at best, he would have got back what was lost. But in God's economy, not only did he get back what was lost, check. He got back more, check. And he took care of the Amalekites because that was God's plan all along. Check. Real quick side note. God's not going with your plan because your plan is lame. That's a little highbrow for you. A little intellectual. You don't want your plan to win. Because it's not as good as God's plan. God has a really cool plan. A plan that you never even dreamed of. A plan that you don't have the resources for. A plan that accomplishes not only what God wants to get done, but can find a way to find blessing for you there too. You don't want your plan to win. You don't want your plan to go. As a matter of fact, if God goes with your plan, I don't consider that a praise. Stop railing at God that he's not doing what you're asking him to do and start thanking him that he's not asking that he's not doing what you're asking him to do. Hmm. You know what's intriguing about this is this happens over and over and over. When Israel left Egypt, they were going to have nothing. They went from slaves to desert dwellers. They had nothing. Complete empty pockets, yeah? They walk out, and it would have been exactly like that, but we know for sure that they were going to wander around for 40 years. So how much resources do you need for a 40-year trip? That's tough to pack for. So God changes the hearts of the Egyptians and for some weird reason, the Egyptians load up the Israelites with all this treasure and they leave Egypt loaded. They never saw that one coming because they just took the spoil of a war they never fought. Even if they would have fought the Egyptians, they would have lost. God fought the Egyptians and they won. And they never lifted a hand. All right, so we have one last issue to handle. Then David came back. Remember the 200 guys that he left behind? 
David came back to those 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Besor. So those 200 guys come out and meet David, and they meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. But then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David, remember, these are not great guys. They're tough guys, but they're not nice guys. These are the ones that wanted to stone him earlier, okay? They said, because these 200 didn't go with us, we're not giving them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and leave. What does that sound like? Sounds like a bunch of jerks. Here's what they just said. Oh, hi, little 200 baggage watchers. Did my bags go anywhere? Did they move? Did they do anything? Okay, we went out and we killed some serious Amalekites, right? So we're out there, we're fighting, we're getting all crazy, and you're sitting back here. And you know why you're sitting back here? Because you're weak. And you're weak because we're all running. I went the 75 miles. I went the 20 miles. And you're like, oh, my feet hurt. I can't go any further. And you wimp out and you collapse right there. I was exhausted too, but not me. No, we all get up back going. We run all the way more and we go there and we fight. And you know what? I'm the one that put it on the line. I'm the one that earned all this stuff. I'm the one that fought the battle. So you know what? As far as sharing this stuff, that's not going to happen. And we look at him and we go, man, what a bunch of selfish brats. Problem is, it's us. How do I know? Because we use the phrase, I have earned. That's why. Look how David responds. Because there's two problems with that scenario. The first one is the most important. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. First problem, you didn't win the war, buddy. God won the war. Did it through you, you think you're cool, you're not. It was not your strength. You didn't liquor up the enemy. You didn't prepare for it. You didn't have the Amalekites sitting there, the Egyptian slave. All of it was designed by God. I know you think you're so smart. I know that you think you're a great warrior. I know that you think that you did all that. No, look at our strategy and look at what we did. You didn't do it. It's always God. Stop using the phrase, I earned this. This is mine. Because you don't know what you're talking about. It's not your stuff. It's never been your stuff. And you keep talking about you're not going to share when it's not yours? Who do you think you are? And this is us, right? This is us. Anytime that God starts going, hey, I'd like you to give some of this uh, money that I gave you. I want you to give it to the missionaries. I want you to give it to the church. I want you to help out a neighbor across the street who's having a really hard time. And we immediately get offended. What? With the money that I earned? I'm the one that was out there earning it. I did... Really? You got your job. Really? You got your education. It wasn't God that helped you through that process. It wasn't God that opened the doors. It wasn't God that gave you the strength. It's not God that's allowing your blood to continue to pump through your veins because there are people whose blood is not pumping through their veins. 
It's not God who's not keeping your brain together. It's not God who's giving you breath of life. It's not God that's doing all this. And you keep claiming it's you. When did it become you? Because until you're the savior or the master of the universe, that's not an accurate statement. If you're saying I put forth effort, I'm there. But if you say I did it all, you're wrong. First problem, you didn't do it all. So stop pretending it's yours. You are merely a distribution house for God. Second problem, we're on the same team. Look at the next phrase. Who would listen to you in this matter? Meaning, well, that's a dumb idea. For as you share, for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from this day forward. What's the rule? We're on the same team. Stop playing like just because you played a different role that we're not on the same team. We're on the same team. Let's play church again. Let's play family again. Just because you go out and you earn the money doesn't make you any different from any other member of your family. We're on the same team. Just because I'm up here preaching in the front and you're back there helping hand out Bibles does not mean we're different. We're the exact same. We're on the same team. We're just doing the pieces that God divvied out to get done what God wants to get done. So whether or not you're back there teaching the children or whether you're sitting here learning or whatever you're doing, it all matters. Not only that, but practically it matters. How in the world did the Amalekites get an in to go raid their home city? Because they all left to go to war. No one was watching the baggage. Hey, that's funny. That's why we're in this situation in the first place. So for those 200 guys to be too exhausted to watch the baggage meant the Amalekites couldn't circle around back and rip them off again. Everybody's playing a part. Stop playing that some are better than others just because it's flashier. We're all God's family and it's all God's might. Do we share? Yeah, we share. It closes up with David doing something rather extraordinary. Because this is the first time David's ever had any money. David just got loaded. How? How? Because God snapped the Amalekites and gave them all their stuff. They've been raiding for months. They have a whole bunch of gear. He got to have it all in his pocket. So for the first time in his life, he's rich. He's never been rich before. He grew up poor. He didn't have a whole bunch of money. Maybe middle class to lower. And all his life, he's had nothing. As a matter of fact, the reason he had to rely on Nabal, if you remember that whole story was because he's poor. He's always lived off the charity of other people. He's run through the desert and he never has his own stuff. He always has to go, hey, can me and my men stay here? So what is he going to do when he first becomes a lottery winner? He immediately goes back and repays all the people that helped him along the way. He went in to all the leaders of Judah and said, you helped me out and I didn't forget it. I'm not going to be Nabal. I'm not going to take advantage of you. Now that I have money in my pocket, I will repay you, 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 you. I just want you to know everything you did matters. And I'm thankful. Now, 
That's probably his plan. His plan was to be a man of integrity. His plan was a man to repay and to bless. But you know what God's plan was? Bigger than that. What was God's plan? Guess who's going to make David king in the next story? All the leaders of Judah. Because they see a man of integrity who ended up repaying all those debts. And they thought, I would love a man like that to lead me. Did David do it to earn their favor? No. Probably did it because it was the right thing to do. If you stick with God's plan, he does some pretty incredible things. All right. So let me close with this thought. God leads us through some pretty crazy valleys of life. But not knowing what's going on is not indicative of being lost. It means you don't have the map. You don't have the map because God has the map and God's not giving you the map. Because you'd lose the map. You see, when you engage with God, you both get and give more than you bargain for. This is the devotion I want to share out of this book. He's talking through the gospel of Mark about the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. You remember the story whose little daughter is dying? Now, you all know what a synagogue ruler does for a living. He's a synagogue ruler. <laughs> synagogue ruler is like a Jew's Jew. He's in charge of the Jewish house of worship. And if you remember, Jesus didn't necessarily get along with the religious leaders of the day in Judaism. So for their leader to come fall down before Jesus and beg and plead with him to come heal his daughter, this man is at the end of his rope. Jairus falls down before Jesus and he begs. He said, will you come and heal my daughter? And Jesus says, yes, I will. Jairus believed at that moment that he had to have enough faith mustered up in his heart to just get home. As they start to walk, Jairus' worst fears happen. What happens? Anybody remember? They get stopped. Remember, we're hurrying. She's sick. She's dying today. They're trying to hurry home. They get stopped. What happens? A woman comes up and touches him. Instead of Jesus just letting her be healed and disappear, which is what she wanted, she wanted to touch and run. He stops everything, calls her out in front of the crowd and says, who touched me? Well, there's a lot of people. Someone touched me. Power went out from me. Where are you? Calls her forward and starts this big, long discussion. Oh, daughter of Abraham and blah, 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 blah. Being super sweet. Keller says, think about what Jairus is thinking at this moment. Let's go. Come on, buddy. My daughter is dying. You're taking too long. But Jesus won't be hurried. Keller says it's not that Jesus was late. It's that Jesus was committing malpractice. How do we know that? Because if you have an emergency room and a chronic condition of 12 years comes in in one bay and a small child comes in with an acute condition dying immediately... It is your obligation and responsibility to treat the child and to leave the chronic condition that will last another day. Jesus does not do that. He turns from the child and spends all this time with the lady that you would get sued for. But Jesus knows what he's doing. The whole time Jairus is constantly praying in his mind, 
please hurry, please hurry, please hurry, please hurry, please hurry, please hurry. Woman, just stop talking. As they're talking, his greatest fear occurs. Men walk up and say, she's gone. He took too long. I know it's not your fault, but just tell the master there's no point in him coming anymore. She's done. Jairus' heart is destroyed. Jesus turns and looks at him and he said, don't worry. I need you to believe me on this one. Finishes up his conversation and says, let's go to your house. They go in and we remember this story, right? He comes in and says she's not dead, but she's sleeping and everybody makes fun of him. And then he raises her to life. Remember that? Keller's point was this. When you come to Jesus, you both get and give more than you bargained for. Jairus thought he would need enough faith to get Jesus home. He had no idea he was going to have to trust him to raise a child from the dead. Jesus pushed him further than he ever imagined. The woman came to Jesus with a hit and run. Jesus wouldn't take it and pushed her out into the public eye that she's been trying to avoid for 12 years. Why? Because she needed it. Jesus doesn't go with your plan because he loves you too much. And there's no way he's going with a less. But a synagogue ruler who sees a daughter healed is one changed man. A Jewish leader from the synagogue that sees a child resurrected is a different changed man. One he's seen before. One he's never seen before. So, what's my point? My point is, of course you don't know what's going on. Nor do I. You're not supposed to. If you knew, it'd probably be your plan, and that would be horrible. You don't want your plan. You want God's plan. It's a lot better. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, be praised in us, glorified in us. That God, you are so good. I know, Father, that we cast all sorts of names upon you and things don't go our way. But the truth of the matter is you are good, you are great, you are mighty, and you are all that we need. Father, bring our faith to the place where we can accept that if you're here, we're all right. If you're in charge, it's going to work the right way, not at all like we want, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.